Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here this morning. Um, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to uh, the New Testament to Galatians chapter 5. And uh, today, as many of you know, we're wrapping up a, a, our series called Two Ways to Live, in which we've been looking at what Scripture refers to as the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, throughout the study, uh, we've been pressing uh, both the idea and the importance of personal spiritual reflection. Why is that? Uh, it's primarily because I, I, uh, I believe Christian author and thinker Oz Guinness is correct when in his award-winning book, Renaissance, points out that all too often we as Christians, you know, we've set out high, clear statements of the authority of the Bible, but flout them with lives and lifestyles shaped more by our own sinful preferences and by modern fashions and convenience. He says, all too often we've attacked the evils and injustices of others while we've condoned our own sins, turned a blind eye to our own vices, and lived captive to materialism and consumerism in ways that contradict our faith. And so Guinness calls um, uh, us in the church to a deep soul searching, you know, to an honest, personal assessment of our lives, because the reality is uh, what we do every day reveals who we are. Jesus put it this way, he said to his followers, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. And as we've seen uh, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul picks up on Jesus' teaching, uh, and he writes this letter to Christians in the early church, and in that letter he draws a very sharp distinction between two very different types of lives, two very different types of experiences. Uh, one lived by human effort, led by the flesh or the sin nature, and the other lived by grace, led by the Spirit of God. Uh, and Paul, Paul explains to Jesus' followers that he says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh or the sin nature. For the flesh desires what is, what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that, so that you are not to do whatever it is you want. But how does one know if they're walking by the Spirit? Well, Paul anticipates the question. He says there, there's tangible, experiential, observable evidence. He writes, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. A sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, uh, and the like. And none of those things sit well with any of us, right? I mean, Christians and non-Christians agree these things are, these things are wrong. They're hurtful. Uh, they're unhealthy. And certainly uh, destructive to relationships and to community. Uh, and Paul says, look, these things are not of a divine nature because, the God, because God's Spirit produces very different things in our lives. He writes, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he writes, against such things there is no law. In other words, he's saying, you can't, look, you can't force this stuff. You cannot legislate this stuff, either by government or by religion. You can't do it. This is not about human effort. It's not about trying harder. Man-made rules and religious regulation will not transform people from the inside out. You can't make somebody be kind and peaceful and patient and gentle and all the rest. You just can't do it. All of these become a reality in our lives, uh, not because of law, but because of God's grace and his power to transform us. And then Paul writes this, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and its desires. 
What is his point? His point is that our, our human nature, as human beings, our, our sin nature is, is an incredibly powerful thing, and therefore it is not easily or quickly dispatched. It's an excruciatingly slow and agonizing spiritual process. But when we put our faith in Jesus and we experience the grace of God and we are infused by his spirit, that crucifixion, that execution, that putting to death of, of the sin nature begins. And although it may be, although it may be slow, it is happening. And there will be a level of transformation taking place in our lives where obedience to God becomes more the norm than the exception. And people are going to see that. They're going to recognize that. In short, Jesus changes things. God's grace changes things. The Spirit of God changes things. He changes us. And then in the last two verses of chapter 5, Paul begins to, he begins to tie all these thoughts together. And remember earlier he said, walk by the Spirit. Uh, and he's gonna, he, he keeps up this metaphor. He says, earlier he says, walk by the Spirit. Now he says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Uh, now I realize we've spent several weeks um, studying the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all the rest. And I know we tend to think of them in personal terms. You know, uh, These things are to be exhibited in my life. And that's true. But it's important we recognize that the fruit of the Spirit carry community implications. They are outwardly focused things. All of them. And all of them are critical to healthy relationships in the church and among Christians. And to a great extent, that's Paul's point. Uh, he's saying if God's Spirit is dwelling in us and transforming us, then we're not going to be, we're not going to be an arrogant, immoral, provocative jealous, angry, selfish, envious, greedy group of people. Instead, we're going to be a community of grace. And make no mistake about it, the community is at the center of Paul's thinking here. I mean, just consider the language he uses in these verses. We, us, us, each other. Clearly, he has community in mind. In fact, as Paul continues writing his letter, immediately in chapter 6, he begins to describe what a community of grace actually looks like. Uh, and how the fruit of the Spirit uh, gets applied in the context uh, of the church and, and Christian relationships. And a side note here, most of our, most of our English translations uh, of Scripture um, introduce a chapter break at this point. But realize in Paul's original document, the text would not have had, it wouldn't have been divided into chapters or verses. It would have looked something like this, just, uh, you know, just a Greek text in letter format, sort of a long run-on uh, um, group of, of uh, Greek letters, and uh, it's our contemporary translators who, who work to decide when and where to add chapter breaks in order to divide the text and make it more readable. And in my opinion, this is a poor place for a break because really Paul is continuing his train of thought. Uh, he's saying to the church, you know, the Spirit of God and the grace that he applies to our lives produces spiritual fruit and, it, and that fruit brings health and balance into our relationships. And this is how it's going to look. This is how it's going to play out. He writes, brothers and sisters, which was just a first century way of saying friends, fellow Christians, believers. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So let's stop and think about that for a second. Let that sink in. What is Paul describing here? And keep in mind, the church in Galatia was being torn apart by re religious legalism, 
which uh, created uh, an environment of arrogance, judgmentalism, jealousy, anger, hate, discord, and bitterness. It was a pretty messed up scene. And Paul is saying that is not what God intends the church to be. The church is to be a community of grace, a place where broken, imperfect people are loved, embraced, engaged with, a place where there is forgiveness, where there is help, and where there is healing. Paul says, for example, he says, for example, if someone is caught in a sin, and, uh, you know, this statement uh, carries a number of implications, right? It's not the least of which is that there are no, no perfect Christians in the church. Uh, the great irony of contemporary Christianity is that the church is the only human institution where we have to admit to being messed up to get in, and then once we're in, we pretend like we're not messed up, all right? But we all are. We all are. Sin remains a problem in all of our lives. None of us are perfect. And then while there may be some who may like to think that, well, because of God's grace, anything goes, I can do whatever I want, Paul says, no, that's not how it works at all. Grace doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. There are attitudes and there are behaviors that God says are, are wrong, that are destructive to yourself and to others. And to pursue those things is not just detrimental to you and others. It's, it's an act of rebellion against what God says is right and good and true. It's sin. In fact, uh, the Greek term translated sin here literally means to kind of fall to the side. Uh, it carries the idea of a false step, a stumbling off course. And, uh, and then the Greek term for caught doesn't mean you're caught like surprised. It means caught in the sense of being overtaken. You're trapped by something. It's not a one-time thing. This refers to someone who is stuck in a habitual state of stumbling, of sin. So here's the deal. Paul says that we are to keep in step with the Spirit. We're to walk by the Spirit. We're to keep in step with the Spirit. But sometimes we fall out of step. All of us do. And if we see a fellow Christian who has been overtaken by sin, trapped in a habitual state of stumbling, love and grace carry responsibility. You know, we don't condone sin. We don't pretend that it's not happening. That's not love. We don't jump to condescendingly condemn, judge, punish, or embarrass each other. That's not grace. So what do we do? Paul says, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. You who live by the Spirit. Is he talking to some special group of perfect Christians? No. No, because there aren't any. Is he talking about doctrinal experts, the professional clergy, theological specialists, religious elitists? No. I mean, understand, Paul is simply talking to anyone who has the Holy Spirit, any believer who exhibits the fruit of the Spirit in their life. And so this is Paul's way of saying, look, that as Christians, we have a responsibility, all of us, to love, help, and care for one another. And if we see a fellow believer caught in sin, trapped, stumbling off course, we go to try and help them and to restore them um, gently. It's interesting that the Greek term for restore here was an ancient medical term that was used uh, of setting a fracture, you know, putting a bone back in place. And knowing that, uh, you can see how Paul keeps this whole walking, stepping metaphor going, right? Essentially, he's saying, uh, walk in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, and if you see someone stumble and get broken by sin... Go and set the fracture. Go and help, you know, ensure that that which is broken gets, gets fixed. That which is dysfunctional is made functional. That which is sick gets healed. And the more I thought about it, 
for me at least, the image of a fractured bone, I think offers a, a, a great picture of sin because so often sin is about something good like a bone that gets broken. I mean, think about it. Um, God created us as sexual beings. And sex is good. It's a good thing. But it can get twisted, broken, and cause an awful lot of pain. And there are a lot of things like that in our lives. Careers. Careers are good things, but they can get out of whack. They can become obsessions, dominating our time, our energy, fueling our self-ambition. Sports, entertainment, hobbies, all good things, but they can very easily cause us to stumble off course by displacing God and, dis and, and displacing our service to him and our worship of him. Money is a good and useful thing, but uh, if and when we focus our lives around it, greedily hoarding it for ourselves and with envy, always wanting more and more and more, that's twisted, that's broken, it's sinful. And just like a bone fractured and out of place, sin causes pain and it needs to be dealt with. Whatever is wrong needs to be set uh, straight, not neglected. And so the word restore means if you go to someone to talk about something in their life, which you see is kind of pulling them off course, you're going to go with the, the, you're not going with the intention to wound them more, you're going to try to help bring about healing. Now, is that easy? It's not easy at all. In fact, it's probably going to cause some additional pain because there's just no way of fixing a fracture without some degree of discomfort. And if you've ever broken a bone, you know what I mean. And that's why Paul offers a couple of suggestions for us. He says, any attempt at restoration needs to be done gently, cautiously. In fact, the term gentle is the same word uh, Paul used when describing the fruit of the Spirit. We talked about that several weeks ago. If you remember, we learned that in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, the idea of gentleness implied humility, true humility, forgiveness, uh, not being easily provoked, it means strength under control. So what, what that tells us in this, in this uh, restorative context is that if you go to help a friend who's struggling with some ongoing sin in their life, you don't go with an attitude of superiority or with the goal to prove them wrong. You go to share the truth and extend grace and forgiveness to them. You don't go all revved up, ready for an argument. You control your emotions because the person you go to may not necessarily want to hear what you have to say and may not, be, may not respond in a way that you're hoping. You know, sin has a way of blinding all of us. It blinds us to what's true in our lives. And there may be a layer of denial that needs to be broken through. Being aggressive, accusatory, argumentative isn't going to help. Everything you do, tone of voice, what you say, how you say it, the timing, the setting in which you choose to speak, everything is designed to restore. That's the goal. Paul says, we're to deal gently with each other in a way that promotes healing. But he offers this warning. He says, be cautious. Watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Tempted to do what? To become prideful. Arrogant. I mean, let, let's be honest about it. Sometimes we can experience a sort of sick pleasure in the failure of others. Isn't that true? Why is that? It's because someone else's stumbling tends to make us feel better about ourselves. 
You know, we can focus on their, their problems, their sin, their arrogance, or whatever, and, and not look at our own. And then we get this heightened sense of self-righteousness that absolutely has no place in our lives and certainly no place in the church. In fact, I don't believe we can go to someone who's in trouble and adequately accomplish restoration unless we go feeling just as weak and just as vulnerable to sin as the person we're trying to help. If we go to a friend to help, help them with sin in their life, and in our hearts we say, man, oh man, I am such a better person than this. I got so much more on the ball than this person. I'd never do anything like this. As soon as we start thinking that way, as soon as we start viewing ourselves that way, feeling spiritually superior, we're in trouble. Paul says, watch out for that. Instead, he says, be gentle with one another. He says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And the term burden here refers to a heavy weight. You know, sort of this challenge or a problem, big problem that some, that's, that's, that's weighing on someone and they just can't handle it alone. They need some assistance. They need some support. Paul says, we're to help each other bear those kind of things. So here's my question. How do we do that? How do we help carry burdens? Well, think of the image here. It's of someone kind of folding under the crushing weight of something. And in order to help them, you know, they're, they're being crushed by it. In order to help them, what do you need to do? You need to kind of get under the weight with them, right? And help them with the burden. To get right next to them, nearly in their shoes. In fact, you realize that our English word understand comes from the notion to stand under. That's where it comes, the idea comes from. And it means to know and comprehend what someone is going through. So I think it's safe to say that if we want to help carry someone's burden the first thing we need to do is to listen and try to really try to comprehend and empathize with their thoughts, their feelings, their struggles, their, their experience, and let them know we understand. But apparently that's becoming more difficult uh, in a society of self-obsession. Um, in his recent book, The Road to Character, New York Times bestselling author David Brooks writes about how empathy the ability to understand and share the feelings of another has been lost on our culture. He writes, people have become less empathetic. A University of Michigan study found that today's college students score 40% lower than their predecessors in the 70s, 1970s in their ability to understand what another person is feeling. The biggest drop came in the years after 2000. And when I was reading that, I'm thinking to myself, oh man, if the, if the findings of that study are true, and that we in America have become less empathetic, that is a huge problem for our culture. It's an, even, it's an even bigger problem if it's true for us in the church. Is it? Because without empathy, our ability to genuinely help people is crippled. Because the fact is sometimes the most important thing for a person who is hurting is to just feel that someone cares about them, knows about them, and understands what they're going through. I mean, that alone can make a huge difference. So we need to listen. But then the second thing we may need to do is actually share the burden. The term for carry Paul, that Paul uses here could be translated to shoulder, which implies, and here's the tough part, it implies suffering a little by absorbing some of the weight. And this is the same term that the Apostle John used when describing how Jesus carried or shouldered the cross on his way to crucifixion. In short, to help, to help carry or to shoulder a burden means that we share in the suffering. 
For example, uh, one way we can help carry others' burdens is by being willing to give financially to those in need. Jonathan Edwards, considered by many to be America's most um, influential preacher and theologian during the Great Awakening, in a treatise he wrote on giving and Christian charity, uh, he responded to people uh, in the church, many in his church, who would say, I can't afford to give. I'd like to help this person, or I'd like to help the ministry of the church, but I can't. And so Edwards wrote, If our neighbor's difficulties and necessities be much greater than our own, and we see he's not likely to be otherwise relieved, we should be willing to suffer with him and to take part of his burden on ourselves. How else will bearing one another's burdens be fulfilled? He said, if we're never obliged to relieve one another's burdens without burdening ourselves, we will not bear our neighbor's burden when we bear no burden at all. Um, Edwards had a way of saying things quite eloquently and at times a bit confusing. So what he was basically getting at is simple. He's saying, uh, when we say, I can't, you know, I can't afford to give, I can't afford to help, what we actually mean is that we don't want someone else's burden to become ours. Because then we might, not, we might not have the money we want to spend on ourselves to do what we want to do. Now, let's just be honest about it. In a similar way, when we say, you know, I can't afford the time to serve, to help, whatever, what we really mean is, I don't want any of that person's burden to come to me. I don't want to be bothered. I don't want, I don't want to be inconvenienced or have... Have, our, have my schedule, my plans disrupted, and, and, and so I can't, I'm unable to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. But understand, to carry someone's burden means, to some degree, whether financially, emotionally, physically, time, energy, whatever, it means that we're allowing someone else's burden to affect us. And we share some of it with them. We share some of the pain of it. And if we're not doing that, if we're not engaged in people's lives to the point of some degree of suffering, then we're not really carrying one another's burdens. But here's the third thing, and this is important. To carry each other's burdens means to actually help the situation. In other words, if you try to carry too much of someone else's burden, you get too, too involved to the point where their problems, their challenges begin to drain and depress and push you down, make you feel guilty. That ceases to be helpful. That's not good for anybody. But that's not what we're called to do. Paul is saying, help carry each other's burden. But he doesn't say, let their burdens crush you. He says, by doing this, by restoring gently, by carrying each other's burdens, you will fulfill the law of Christ. And what's the law of Christ? Paul summarized that earlier in chapter 5. He says, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And as I'm always compelled to point out when I quote that statement, we love ourselves an awful lot, don't we? So see, in this, in this text, Paul isn't just describing how the grace of God changes us as individuals. He's pressing the fact that grace changes us as a community. The church is not to be a place of arrogance, provocation, anger, greed, envy, but rather the church is to be a spirit-led community in which followers of Jesus genuinely care for one another where love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now the fruit of God's spirit is evident. 
It's to be a place of gentle restoration carried out with, with humility and forgiveness. A place where we help bear one another's burdens. But here's the relieving news. We're not expected to be messiahs or saviors. We're not called to be crushed by others' burdens. Why? Because God's already taken care of that. In the Old Testament, the psalmist put it this way, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah predicted how, how the true Messiah and Savior would come and would ultimately rescue and restore us from that which crushes us to death, sin, rebellion. And the Messiah would come, he wouldn't just share the burden, he would take it on completely. He alone would be the sacrifice. He alone would suffer for us in our place once and for all. Isaiah wrote, he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Here's the point. There's only one Savior who was crushed by sin, who was crushed for sin, for you, for me, and for the world. And his name is Jesus. And when we put our faith in him, he changes us. God's grace changes us. God's spirit changes us, not only as individuals, but also as a community. Let's pray. Our Father, as we've been praying uh, over the past several weeks, I, I, I again ask that um, you, you would help us break through the denial that perhaps is part of our lives. We're, we're, we're blinded to some things that, that are evident to others. We're blinded to some, to some brokenness. We're blinded to some sin in our lives. And maybe we just can't see it. Maybe we just don't want to see it. But I, I, I ask God that you, by the power of your spirit, would reveal to us what is true. You know, how are we living our lives? Where, where is there brokenness? Where is there sin? Where is there rebellion? Help us to be honest about, are we seeing in our lives the fruit of your spirit? Love for others, peace, joy, patience, all of those things. Self-control. Are we seeing that in our lives? And if not, why not? Not only, Lord, do I pray that your spirit would reveal those things to us and the truth of it, but I, God, that your spirit would empower us to deal with them and to put to death the sin nature and our sinful impulses and desires that, that, you know, make us stumble and fall. It would help us, enable us, empower us to overcome those things and to live in such a way that we represent Jesus in our world. I pray, Lord, that in this moment that you would show us what is true about our lives. And if there's arrogance, that you would bring about humility. Whatever it is, if there's greed, Lord, would you help deal with that? bring us to a point of generosity. If it's, if it's, if it's anger and rage, uh, help us to resolve what that's about. What, whatever the issue is, Lord, by your grace, by your amazing grace, move in our lives, we ask.
Show us what's true. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? Forever the hope in my heart. Is that, is that really true for, for you? You know, this whole idea of Christianity is all about the grace of God. It's not about your good works, which aren't impressive to God. Um, Christianity is about not what you can do for God, but what he's done for you in Jesus. Do you guys understand that? Because uh, <laughs> it's critical you do. Um, you know, one of the things I, I, I get concerned about periodically is that um, we don't recognize our need to make a decision regarding that whole deal. You know, um, you, being a Christian, you, can't, you don't become a Christian by being born in a Christian family. You don't become a Christian by going to church. You don't become a Christian uh, through proximity, you know, hanging out with other Christians. It's not like a virus you catch, like, oh, man, I caught some Christianity this week. <laughs> Feeling a lot better about myself. That's not, no, that's, not how, <laughs> that's not how it works. It requires a decision on your part. It requires a stake in the ground where you say, I realize I'm a broken, messed up person, and I need the grace of God in my life. I need, I need what Jesus is offering, forgiveness of sin. I need him. And in that moment, you say in your head and your heart, you say, I believe. I believe Jesus came, lived the life I could never live, died the death I deserve to die, and has forgiven my sin and given me life, and I'm going to follow after him. That's the decision you have to make. And if you've never done it before this morning, you can do it. You can, it's not a big deal. I mean, you don't have to make a big deal about it. You just have to say in your mind and heart, I believe. And maybe the light bulb has gone on for you for the first time. You really get it now. Then you say, Jesus, I believe. I want you to be my Savior. Forgive me. Um, if, that's, if that's something you've never done, do it today. Uh, in fact, let's just, let's just close in a word of prayer here. And, and um, as, as I close this, if that's something that you're doing today, just push your hand up so I know. If you've never done that before, okay. It takes a decision. Um, thank you, Lord, for your, your goodness to us. All good, all good things come from you, our good and loving Father. And most importantly, what comes from you, because of your grace, comes rescue and restoration, comes life in Jesus. And thank you for these folks who, maybe for the first time, have put their faith in you. And I pray for others who need maybe a, a recommitment to that, to that faith in you. And I pray, Lord, that we would all make it today, if need be. In Jesus' name, amen. If, that, if this is the first time you've ever made a decision, or maybe you still haven't to, hey, you know there's a little card on the end of your bulletin. Just write, fill that out and say, I've made a decision to be a follower of Jesus, or I've recommitted yourself, and give it to the, some of the people at the desk, just so that I can know and I can pray for you. Will you do that if that's the first time? Um. Also, I want to let you know, next week, we're done with the series. I hopefully, hopefully you found it helpful. Next week, we're going back to our study in Acts, which we took a break from this summer, but we're going to go back to, to Acts. And next week, we're going to see Paul and Barnabas have a, a fascinating uh, interaction uh, with uh, um, some folks in southern Turkey. Uh, and they were, they were true pagans. They were polytheists. They believe in a lot of different gods. And it's fascinating to see how Paul engages them. We're going to take a look at that, that uh, account next week. Hope you can come back and be with us. I think you'll find it helpful. In the meantime, 
Uh, let me pray God's blessing on, on his church. Now, Father, may your favor rest on your people today. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.